Ashley, what's on your agenda for the weekend? Mm, spending time with you. What about listening to another podcast? In honor of International Women's Day, Another Porte is launching the fourth season of its incredible women podcast. I love this one. The series called The Disruptors celebrates the barrier-breaking women of today, spanning the fields of fashion, journalism, music, art, and more. Each episode will cover key moments that have shaped the guest's life and work, along with their passions and great successes. Netta Porte celebrates the idea of paying it forward by finishing each episode with a question to the guest asking who they would like to raise up in 2022, a disruptor who they admire. For every listen of the first episode of the podcast series through March 14th, Netta Porte will donate $1 to Charity Partner Catalyst, a global nonprofit organization which works with over 800 companies around the world to build workplaces for women and help advance them in their careers. Happy Saturday. It's March 12th, 2022, and you are listening to Morning Meeting. I'm Ashley Baker. And I'm Michael Haney. And we are two of your deputy editors here at Airmail. Welcome to Saturday. It's almost the Ides of March. Start being aware. Ides of March are coming. I don't think you could possibly underestimate the amount of doom and gloom that we've got going on in our universe right now, Michael. But that being said, we are going to have some cheery elements in the show despite the chaos that is raging outside. Absolutely. And some good surprises. A couple funny surprises always. Well, we've been fortunate to have Alessandra on for the past two weeks to talk about everything happening in Ukraine and Russia. And now we have someone reporting live from Moscow. We've got a special guest today. Her name is Katya and her last name is... We are not publishing for her own safety. And she is a poet who is living in Moscow and has some really valuable insight into what the mood is like over there at the moment. So welcome, Katya. I'm very happy to be here. Thank you, Ashley and Michael. Good day for everybody who's hearing this. I'll remind you that English is not my first language. So if I make any mistakes, please be patient yet to my grammar and everything. Yeah, I live in Moscow and uh, I'm a writer and a language tutor. I give people classes of English and Russian and Russian and foreign literature. I don't work at school. Yeah, because, well, because schools are very bureaucratic and there you have to talk about how this war is the right thing to do and everything like that. And because of that, I'm just a freelancer. Yeah. The first thing I experienced with the start of the war, apart from moral rage and feeling of guilt and shame and whole identity crisis, yeah, I didn't and I still don't know how to be Russian now, yeah, how to construct myself, how to, I feel that I have to reinvent myself and that all Russians have to reinvent our nation have to redetermine what being Russian is, what it will be. But that's another question. So the first financial repercussion I had was that I lost some clients abroad. Yeah, I had some students that live in Europe and they just couldn't pay me anymore. And that was a huge blast in the end of February because I needed money to pay for my room. I live in a rented room because I'm not originally from Moscow. But I just asked people online for help. And though I thought that there are people now who need help 
much more than me. People just gave me so many that I donated to over the info to our organizations that help protesters in Russia. So the first experience that I had financially was that, yeah, everything is tightening, but people are still kind and we still want to help each other. As for now, well, financially speaking, I think I'm okay because I have never worked at any company that is leaving Russian market now. And because I don't live in any, I don't work in any state institution from which they can kick me out uh, for some of my views and ideas. Yeah. So I still have clients. I still have some money and I try to buy some packs of food to get ready for the hard times. You're living in this period of incredible suppression of free speech and in some ways free thought in Russia. How many people like you are there in the country? Like, do you have a sense of how widespread these sentiments are? And tell us a little bit about like what the conversations are like that you're having with your friends and family about this war in Ukraine. Yeah, thank you. It's really very hard to tell how many people in Russia uh, oppose the war and uh, oppose Putin's regime and how many people support this kind of thing. Because you can't trust street polls. You can't trust polls at all. Yeah, because many people just are too frightened to say what they really think. And uh, there is, of course, a lot of people who still believe TV propaganda. So even if they say they support the war, they really mean that they support some made-up special peacemaking operation in which no civilians are killed. And if you tell them that civilians are killed, that cities are bombed, yeah, if you show them these photos of Kharkiv and Mariupol, they either have to change their opinion or to say that every single piece of information you give them is fake. Because most people are not cruel, yeah, they don't want to support a bloodshed. But the influence of TV propaganda, of the whole official media propaganda, is really, really great here. Russians have seen their lives and livelihoods disrupted day by day by day. It seems like there's another sanction or another regime lockdown that's affecting you. Tell us a little bit about how your quality of life has changed over the past three weeks as this invasion of Ukraine has unfolded. Well, I think it is more about to change than it has already changed because we still have all those things that we just bought before. We still have all those clothes from fashion retailers that left the country. We still have food in stores. And I think the most important thing is that the inflation rate in Russia now is higher than it was in 1998, when there was economy default. And uh, so prices getting up with every day. They're growing. And for example, people with children, people from poor families, from poor regions, they are already suffering from it. And uh, interesting thing that our government is now banning all regional media, all small local newspapers and news sites that don't say anything about the war, but that just post news about how people are becoming more and more poor and how goods are more and more hard to 
excess. Katya, you write in your essay this week, and it's very moving. And I want to ask you about a point you make in it, which is I'm sure many of our listeners want to know, like, where they, well, okay, here's Katya. She's a very intelligent, smart, sensitive woman. And if you can speak to your, you thought about leaving, you thought about, there was a moment you thought about fleeing and getting out, and yet you've chosen to stay. And can you talk about that? Thank you, Michael. Thank you for all the kind words. Yeah, I chose to stay. It was really not some sort of a heroic action. I just cried too hard when I had this ticket. Yeah, when I bought it and I started to realize how much I have to leave here, how much I can't take with me. I just tried too hard and I decided that, no, it's it's not worth it. I think that uh, leaving or not leaving is a personal decision. Yeah, everybody has to make it for themselves. There is no universal recipe in this matter. And either leaving or staying here is very likely to produce some trauma experience, yeah, is very likely to leave you with a PTSD then. So it's just choose your trauma. I chose this one. There are many explanations that I'm trying to give myself, but really the explanation, all explanations are just trying to rationalize my initial feeling. And my feeling is that that's my home and that so very dramatic as it may sound, yeah, I don't want to leave it. I want to defend it as much as I can, yeah. And also many people can't leave. They just can't because they don't have good health. They don't have enough money. And somebody has to stay to support these people, yeah, because if everybody runs, I just don't want to, I don't know, leave my elder relatives here with Putin and his oligarchs. You have been speaking out against Putin and his regime for a long time, and you were raised in a family that supported that and that had that kind of legacy. You wrote in your story that you hadn't previously been that afraid for your safety. How do you feel now? You know, I sometimes feel paranoid. Yeah, I. there are two things that are combined in my character, very unlucky for me. I am a very careless person, yeah? I use my real name, my real photos and say whatever I want to say and don't think about uh, possible consequences. And then I think, oh, no, and my paranoia starts acting out. So I've never been careful enough. And I feel that now there are very little things that I still can do to protect me and my identity because... I think that everything that can be leaked is leaked already. But I still try to protect my privacy, the safety of my devices and everything. And uh, I think that, well, living with this fear, yeah, with this paranoia, it's really traumatic. It's really emotionally damaging. And I'm just dreaming now of the day some maybe many years in the future, when I go to my therapist and I say, you know, I have this paranoia. I just uh, think that uh, policemen are going to break into my flat and what am I going to do? And my therapist will say, this all has ended many years ago. Now you have to get rid of this fear. I'm dreaming of this day, but now it's reality. Every night I, when I go to sleep, I start thinking things like, 
oh, they're going to put me in jail. I don't want to be in jail because I'm just a girl who likes cats and pink lipstick. I'm not a revolutionary. I've never prepared myself for that. I'm a teacher. But then I say to myself something like, well, they can't put in jail everyone. It's the first thing because they just don't have the resources yeah, to make such big repressions. And well, people survive jail usually. It's the most important thing to just not to get killed or not to kill yourself, just to survive. You know, Katya, it strikes me talking to you that there have been a lot of stories in the press about the bravery of Ukrainians and Zelensky and these people that are standing up for their country. But there's also an incredible amount of bravery happening in Russia right now, originating from you and your friends and your colleagues and people of your mindset who are speaking up against this incredibly difficult regime that is so suppressive. So just know that the world is with you in many ways and that we send you all of our support and we thank you for your bravery because if anyone is able to stop Putin from this disastrous track, it's going to be Russians like you. Thank you very much for your support. It really means something, means a lot actually. I think that most Russians who try to oppose the regime and the war now understand that Ukrainians are suffering much more than we are and that all the media attention to them is earned. Yeah, It's a normal thing to talk about Ukrainians and the power, the energy of their nation. It just strikes me. Yeah, My friends and I sometimes just, I don't know, end our conversations with sayings like glory to Ukraine. And it's, it's not a joke. It's a real thing. But of course, Russia is, I think it's fractured now. Yeah, it's, there is no like, whole Russia. Russia consists of very, very different groups of people. And uh, I don't know what's going to, to happen here, really. I don't know if we can ever win against this government just with our group of intellectuals with liberal values. Yeah, we don't have weapons. Well, Maybe we need some other people, yeah, who want to get rid of Putin. But I think that there will be such people now with all the sanctions, yeah, because elites want to, to have some certain quality of life, and now they can lose this quality. Well, Kata, thank you again for your time and your insight and your heroic efforts uh, to speak out against this regime. And Thank you, Michael and Ashley. Thank you, everybody. It's very moving, Katya, and encourage everyone to read your essay this week. We wish you safety. Bye, Katya. Thank you again. You're welcome. Goodbye. Well, it takes an incredible amount of bravery, not only to get on the phone with us, given the arcane laws that Putin has enacted against telling the truth. Also, she's written this beautiful story in airmail that I highly recommend you read, share, send it to your friends. It's an invaluable account of what's actually happening. For everyone who thinks like, why isn't everyone leaving Russia and why would the people who disagree stay? It's got a good perspective on all that. Great. All right. Well, shall we move on to some slightly lighter fare? As an absolute counterpoint to all of that talk on Russia, let's do a very short Kardashian segment, shall we? Sure, because there's no better palate cleanser than going from the Kremlin to Kardashian. <laughs> I remember when we first started Airmail, we sort of described ourselves as the one publication that wasn't going to talk about the Kardashians, and yet here we are. We can't escape them. All right, we have another excerpt from Dana Brown's wonderful memoir, Dilettante, in the issue this week. And in it, we have some revelations about the 
Caitlyn Jenner cover reveal that was published in Vanity Fair during the time that Brown was working on there. And boy, it's a doozy. Yes, this was when Graydon was editing Vanity Fair. For those of you who are living under a rock, this was when Bruce Jenner transitioned to become Caitlyn Jenner. And Dana was working at Vanity Fair at the time and tells the inside story of how that cover came to be and what it was like to be on set during the Annie Leibovitz photo shoot with the writer, Buzz Bissinger, who wrote the piece and embedded really sort of like over a period of months with Jenner as Bruce became Caitlyn. I think the Kardashian link here is not just that Bruce was the um, head of that family in some ways, but that Kim back then was trying to crash the photo shoot, right, Ashley? Always an opportunist. It's totally fascinating to me how this whole thing came together because we've read so much about the discord between Caitlyn and Kim Kardashian in the wake of this cover. And now, thanks to Dana, we actually have some insight onto why this happened. Okay, so this photo shoot was supposed to take place over the course of a single day at Jenner's home in Malibu in May of 2015. Now, on a typical cover shoot, there used to be 20 to 30 people. And if it was for a big, fancy Hollywood issue cover of Vanity Fair, even more than that. But this was a very stripped-down operation, as Dana writes. Annie Leibovitz was the photographer. She had a much smaller team than usual, just a couple of assistants, The fashion and photo teams were only four or five people. There was no DJ, no music, no catering. Security was very tight, very, very tight. But there's this moment where Dana and Buzz are at the shoot, just sort of on the periphery observing Leibovitz working. And one of the security guys is standing on the sort of looking down the mountain. And he's got a pair of binoculars and he says to them, there's a Bentley coming up the hill. Kim's inside of it. It was Kim. She had to go through the same checkpoint, and all of a sudden she was in the house. Now, Dana writes, Kim's not tall. It's just a few inches over five feet. She's curvier than the winding mountain road she drove in on. She was 100% camera ready. Now, at the time, Vanity Fair and the Kardashians did not have a relationship at all. In fact, there was an unofficial ban on any Kardashians appearing in the magazine. None of them had been invited to the Oscar party. It was a cultural cold war, as Dana writes. And nobody was happy to see Kim show up. She was a distraction. There was a certain type of energy that they were trying to cultivate. And Kim made her case. She wanted to be on the cover of Vanity Fair along with Caitlyn Jenner. And Michael, tell us how it all went down. Well, so she's kind of standing there eyeing the shoot and sort of trying to catch Leibovitz's attention and sort of, you know, uh -uh, cocking her head and tossing her hair. Meanwhile, Buzz and Dana are tasked with kind of running interference and keeping her from moving into frame, right? So you've got this kind of very delicate dance, not wanting to distract Caitlin, not wanting to sort of make Kim go off the rails. But meanwhile, Annie just kept plugging away. She was not taking the bait. And after a while, it sort of all just vanished, right? Yeah, I love the photos too. But I mean, there are so many good behind-the-scenes photos from that day that we run in our stories. So it's really worthwhile taking a look back at this historic moment in magazine history that happened at good old Vanity Fair. And then we've got another kind of Kardashian-themed story. Sorry, Graydon, in the issue this week. This is written by Jill Kargman, who is hilarious. And like many of us, Jill is looking for a respite and a distraction from the crazy news cycle that we're living in. And she has stumbled upon the Julia Fox memes. As Jill writes, everyone else has moved on from Julia Fox at this point, including Kanye West, who broke up with her after six weeks, or she broke up with him. Who knows? Who really cares? But The memes going around on the internet are keeping Jill wildly entertained. Did you ever see this, Michael? It was, she said in an interview, she was quoted in an interview as saying that she was a muse for the director of Uncut Gems, but the way she pronounced Uncut Gems was something truly hallucinating. It was like, Uncut Gems, Uncut Gems. And 
And Jill talks about how now, like, she can't help it. Like, she uses that as a greeting. Like, when she sees her kids, she says, uncut jams. Or, like, instead of saying it's time to come to dinner, she says, uncut jams. So it's just a very funny riff from a very funny writer, but it made me smile. I'm glad you handled that one because I was not going to attempt to even do justice to Jill or Jill's representation of uncut gems. Okay, well, in the restroom at Aramil HQ, we have a little quote framed on the sink that says, editing is the art of elimination. So therefore, perhaps journalism is the art of asking questions. And in the issue this week, we ask a very important one, which is whatever happened to Romeo Gili? Some of you are probably thinking, oh, no, they're just going to talk about another grifter. No, Romeo Gili was one of the most important fashion designers of the late 80s and early 90s. He had quite a storied history, and then he completely disappeared from the scene. And this week, our intrepid reporter, Bridget Foley, tracks him down in Marrakesh of all places, and she is here to tell us all about it. So welcome to Bridget, who was a marvelous fashion critic for Women's Wear Daily for many, many years. And we're thrilled to have her writing for Airmail and speaking to us today. Michael, what's your favorite podcast? Mm, this one. Okay, fine. But surely you hold a special place in your heart for Netta Porte's Incredible Women podcast. The fourth season called The Disruptors has just started releasing new episodes each week. Celebrating the barrier-breaking women of today, it includes women in the fields of fashion, journalism, music, art, and much more. And they've booked a great lineup of guests, starting with Laverne Cox in episode one. I'm really looking forward to hearing from Yalda Hakim, the award-winning news correspondent and presenter who started a foundation for women in Afghanistan and who made headlines in 2021 when she spoke to the Taliban live on air. And Arlo Parks will be on the show, too. She's one of the most exciting new talents in the music industry today. Download season four of Netta Porte's Incredible Women podcast called The Disruptors wherever you get your podcasts. For every listen of the first episode of the podcast series through March 14th, Netta Porte will donate $1 to Charity Partner Catalyst, a global nonprofit organization which works with over 800 companies around the world to build workplaces for women and help advance them in their careers. Hello, Ashley. Thank you. And Michael. So, Bridget, you've known this guy for a long time. Tell us about how he first came on your radar and what his relevance was in the fashion world. Well, Romeo Gili burst into fashion fame and to the upper echelon of fashion when I was a young journalist at WWD. And he was one of those names who just took fashion by complete storm, one of those sort of rapturous moments that only people who really understand and love and buy into the power of fashion can appreciate. He came to fame in the late 80s and early 90s. There was a show that he had in Paris. And very often, designers who have a certain profile or a certain name, one key, especially years ago, I think one key show can really catapult them into fame. And that's what happened to Gilles at a show he had in Paris. He instantly became this fashion deity. And what was so interesting about him is that he was counter to the prevailing looks of the day. Power Woman and then the Nouvelle Society. Look, they, they were juxtaposed in and of themselves, but they were both very, they became very huge and powerful and were the primary directions of fashion in the mid to late 80s. And he came along with this. It was very interesting because it was a very powerful look, but there was a lyricism and a romanticism and a gentleness to it that was completely the opposite of both of those other directions in different ways. When you're talking about, I mean, there was that sort of like 80s power woman padded shoulder look, right, on the one hand, and it was all about strength and projecting these exaggerated silhouettes. And yet when he comes along, as you said, it had its own power, but that power was more, and the drama was in the romance, right, and in the, how that promised to transport people really, right? Transport is the perfect verb. The power was in the romance, the otherworldliness of it, elements of, of sort of renaissance 
shape and structure and punk. And, and then there were all of these and neoclassical elements. And then there were all of these elements from his travels. Gili started very young as a traveler, as a world traveler. He first went to Morocco, where he now lives when he was 17. And then when his parents died when he was 19, it triggered a very sort of a nomadic period when he traveled the world. And he took in all of these references and they all coalesced into this collection, into these clothes that no one had ever seen before. And this aesthetic that no one had ever seen before. There were elements of that, I say, that were classical. And in that sense, discreet but then there were also there was a powerful element there was lavish embellishment bold color and a lot of cut and structure and tailoring managed in a very interesting way that the fashion had never seen before and people were quite mesmerized fashion loves the new and this was completely new and arresting in a way that was not out there in any other way shape or form so why bridget did he disappear fashion is unforgiving tom ford loves to say that you give the world your aesthetic once and that's true. And your aesthetic evolves and can evolve and change and should evolve and change over the years. But for most designers, for most designers who really have a vision and who really have a point of view, it remains fairly constant and they advance it if they're lucky and if they're smart and if they can, they advance it as the years progress. But the initial wow factor obviously doesn't stay the same. So that's one. So you have to be able to maintain that wow factor. You have to be able to maintain the aesthetic and maintain interest in the aesthetic, which he absolutely did for quite a while. I mean, Romeo Gigli knockoffs for everywhere. But there's also the hardcore reality of staying in business. And it is extremely difficult. Fashion, we hear it all the time. And those of us who are inside the in industry hear it all the time. But I don't know that people really realized how hard it is just to stay in business. And Romeo Gili took in an outside investment and it didn't go well. It was very, 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 very complicated. It went on over years, but ultimately he lost his name. He never did get it back. I like what you say about Tom Ford and you get to put your aesthetic out there once, but the other cautionary tale, as you mentioned in this just now, is to maintain control, not only of your aesthetic, but of your name, right? And we've seen this before, whether it's Helmut Lang or Gili or other designers who lose control of their name and because they make bad deals. And here, Gili comes into contact with someone who raises his name and then I leave it to you to decide what impact they have on him losing his name, right? Do you know, you're talking about Carla Susani, who was an editor at the time. She was a very well-known and respected editor at the time. And they met at a press luncheon or a press dinner and they hit it off and they became partners. He invited her into the company. They became partners. They became supposedly personal partners as well. It's, you know, sort of very mysterious story. And for a while, she totally helped him. And from his side, she totally helped him in terms of PR and outreach to editors and outreach to retailers and, and in getting his name established and in helping him navigate the intricacies and the politics of the fashion structure. But somewhere it went sour. And Carla chose not to speak with me. Romeo Gili says that he wound up signing all kinds of contracts, some of which he didn't understand. They were written in English and he didn't understand them. It went on for years. In fact, it went on long after Carla relinquished any role in the business. And he tried over the years to get his name back. And to date, he hasn't been able to do it. There's a Romeo Gigli brand now that has nothing that with which he has nothing to do. And it really is a cautionary tale. I mean, Halston was really the first highly publicized example of this. Yes. And it's really, really hard. And it must be so tempting when you're this creative genius and your fame far outweighs the reality of your business. But Gili today is still, one of the interesting things about creative people, I think, is their passion to create. And he is still doing that. 
Right now, he's working on a furniture project. He has done other furniture projects over the years. He's from the very beginning. He did things like that. He did. He was a collaborator before collaborations were all the rage. So he collaborated with many different companies in Italy. But he's also done projects with many different fashion companies. But he's also done projects for furniture collections and rug collections. And right now, he's working on a furniture collection that will be shown. It'll be previewed. He'll preview four pieces at the upcoming Salon de Mobile, and then the rest will launch in September. At the same time. Fashion has this tremendous pull, and Romeo has tried over the years. He has done a number of comeback attempts, and there was one with Joyce in Hong Kong that lasted, I think, four seasons. There have been others that were one season long, and each time there was whether there was a problem with backing or something else that didn't quite work out. I love this story, Bridget. And the fashion industry has so many people like this, right? That made a mark and were so vitally important to the success and health of the industry and then have sort of disappeared into the ether. As a journalist who's covered a lot of these characters over the years, what was it like for you to revisit this one? It was so interesting for me to revisit Romeo Gigli, to revisit his career, to look at the career, what went wrong with the career, but also to talk to him about the aesthetic and about about how it all came together and about his passion for creation and his passion to channel his artistic endeavors. He said he never really considered himself a designer. He considers himself an esthete who works in various creative disciplines. He seems very at peace with where he is, absolutely. But what you say about the demand for scale, that is so true. That's why, I mean, really, and, and that's only increased since the Gili heyday. Thank you so much for this incredible story. Not only do we love the narrative of what you're talking about, but we love the way that you write and it's such a treat to have your words in airmail. So we'll, we'll see you again very soon, not only in the issue, but also back here on Morning Meeting. I hope so. And I'm so happy to have my words in airmail. Thank you both so much. Thanks, Bridget. Thank you, Bridget. Bye-bye. Bye. We'll see you soon. So Michael, before we go off into the weekend, we've got to talk about our recommendations of the week. And I really want to start with The Lost Otter because I know we've both seen this and we talked about it briefly at lunch, but we need to go into it more. So The Lost Otter, Maggie Gyllenhaal's first directorial debut. It's based on a novel by Elena Ferrante. I thought it was fabulous. I liked a lot of it in the moment. And then when I sort of paused with it, there were some disconnects, I thought. But I mean, no, it's I think Gyllenhaal did a great job coming up with this script and the casting is terrific with Olivia Coleman as well as Jesse Buckley and even an appearance by Ed Harris. But it's funny because it, it almost feels like a Patricia Highsmith-based work with really amped up suspense and wondering what the psychological state of Coleman is. But I have not read the story, but according to Julia, who is our books person. Jill and I sort of really ramped up the suspense of it, but I thought it was, it certainly kept me on the edge of the seat and was beautifully shot. How about you? Yeah, so here's the premise of the book. It follows a woman named Leda who's on vacation in Greece, and she's an academic, a scholar known for her translations of Italian works, mostly by Dante, I think. Anyway, she's on vacation in Greece, and she encounters this large, boisterous American family, and among the members of this family are a mother and a daughter, and as Leda watches them interact on the beach, she's reminded of her own days as a young mother when she was really struggling to get it all done and maintain a healthy sense of self. And the film is told in part in flashbacks with Jesse Buckley playing a young Leda. So you've got Olivia Coleman and Jesse Buckley as two halves of the same character. And we're trying to figure out not only what happened to 
Leda when she was young, but also what became of her daughters. And it's all told as this other narrative unfolds in Greece as these two families are interacting. So my one issue with it is it was hard for me to imagine that Jesse Buckley and Olivia Coleman were playing the same character because they felt very different to me. Like Coleman's character seemed so much more unhinged and so much less pragmatic. But fundamentally, I thought it was just fantastic storytelling by Maggie Gyllenhaal. Do you have anything else at all you can recommend to us? I do. I think it's a perfect distraction for these times. LeBron James is not doing so well with the Los Angeles Lakers this season, to the consternation of a lot of fans of the NBA. But if you're looking for something that's going to sort of transport you back to showtime, if for those of you who are fans of the NBA, the new HBO Plus show from Adam McKay, Winning Time, which tells it's a 10-part drama series about the Los Angeles Lakers and how they dominated basketball with the Boston Celtics and Larry Bird in the 1980s. Just came up this week, and it is, I think, I've only seen the first episode, that's all they've let out so far, but you've got an, a fantastic cast. You've got John C. Riley, who plays Jerry Buss, who buys the Lakers by, among other things, selling off his ownership of the Chrysler Building. It's a crazy cast. You've got Adrian Brody, playing Lakers coach Pat Riley. You've even got Sally Field showing up as Jerry Buss's accountant and mother. But it is, I think, Adam McKay drives me a little crazy at times, just the way he directs. And there's plenty of those ticks in here with a lot of people breaking the fourth wall and addressing the camera and a lot of graphics popping up like they had in the big short. But all that aside, it is terrific as I think it was someone on The Ringer put it. This is the crown for sports fans and fans of, of the NBA. It's a sprawling, but it's fun, wonderfully cast, terrific energy, almost like that period when the Lakers and the Celtics really reinvented and basically revitalized the NBA and made it the sort of cultural, global juggernaut that it is right now. Well, see, that's something I never would have heard about. How do you not told it to me? So thank you. No, it's great. It's called Winning Time. It's on HBO+. Plus. Got a few of those McKay ticks in it. But the casting and the performances are really terrific. All right. Well, Michael, thank you so much for giving us something to look forward to. And thank you to our sponsor, Netta Porte, which has just debuted the fourth season of its Incredible Women podcast called The Disruptors. And on that note, Michael, will you please read us out? Absolutely. Morning Meeting is produced by Airplay Productions and edited by Jesse Cannon. Our co-editors are Graydon Carter and Alexander Stanley. Our chief operating officer is Bill Keenan, and our deputy editors are Nathan King, Julie Vitale, and Chris Garrett. Our CMO is Emily Davis, and our music supervisor is Randall Poster. Speaking of music, the theme music is The Cute Monster by the buddy Colette Quintet. A new edition of Airmail is published every Saturday, so please subscribe and enjoy all of our stories on airmail.news, which we update every day. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at Airmail Weekly. We'll be back here next Saturday with another edition of Morning Meeting. In the meantime, be sure to subscribe at Apple Music or Spotify. But most of all, thanks for joining us.